0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse the news of a missile strike in Poland, close to the Ukrainian border, discuss the diplomatic moves made at the G20 in Indonesia, and we interview politics professor Dr Olga Onych about Ukrainian politics, society and democracy.
0: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure.
1: Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilised energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're
2: Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 16th of November, day 266. And today, I'm joined by our Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, our Senior Foreign Correspondent Roland Oliphant, our Assistant Comment Editor Francis Turnley. And our guest today is author and academic, Dr. Olga Onich, senior lecturer in politics at the University of Manchester, and whose upcoming book, The Zelensky Effect, tells the story of Ukraine through the journey of the man who has come to symbolise his country. I started by asking Roland for the latest news from Ukraine
2: and Poland. Good morning. Um, um, there's, there's two things on my rather busy plate. Um, uh, the first and most dramatic, I suppose, is this... Uh, this explosion, this this missile strike accident impact um, in Poland, about four miles from the Ukrainian border. Um, very dramatic happened last night. Um, a lot of confusion. Um, initially thought it might have been um, a Russian missile because it happened basically at the same time as Russia was um, hurling this absolutely enormous wave of uh, of missiles at Ukraine, probably their biggest single strike since the war began um so you know in the region of 100 cruise missiles all over the country uh, targeting energy infrastructure um something landed in poland um it now looks like um it was probably a ukrainian air defense missile launched to intercept an incoming russian missile that went off course um two people were killed in poland that is um massively significant really because this is the first time the war has spilt over uh, genuinely spilt over onto nato territory um this is probably not an article five moment this is not the beginning of world war Two. it is it does look like um accidental spillover um it doesn't look like uh russia deliberately launched an attack on a nato member in which case um yeah, I would be advising you to tell your children you love them um, and, you know, making your peace with God. But um, that that nonetheless is um, is a major incident um, to two NATO s- citizens killed on NATO territory um, as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So we're going to see some pretty serious uh, diplomatic fallout from that. Um, the other thing uh, this happened just as the the, the G20 uh, summit in Bali was breaking up um or, or breaking up it was kind of going into its uh, uh, its last stages it has finally broken up this morning uh, the leaders are slowly getting on planes and leaving it caused a bit of chaos down there um joe biden um convened a, a kind of emergency summit of the other nato and g7 members um who were present at the summit um rishi sunak um uh, the British Prime Minister was meant to meet uh, Xi Jinping this afternoon. That's being called off. Um, we're not quite sure why. It might have something to do um, with all the chaos sparked by that um, and so on. Interestingly, the final communique is out from the G20. And that is, um, I mean, in diplomatic terms, it's something of one in the eye for Russia, really. Um, a kind of surprisingly strong language. I'm just going to, um, if you give me two seconds, get up the text on my phone so... Um, you know, quite high up um, in this 16 page document, um, the leaders say, um, they basically restate a UN resolution that, quote, deplores in the strongest terms the aggression by the Russian Federation against Ukraine, demands its complete and unconditional withdrawal from the territory of Ukraine. Um, goes on, most members strongly condemned the war in Ukraine and stressed uh, it is causing immense human suffering and exacerbating existing fragilities in the global economy. And then they list food, energy, um, health issues, all, all, all the all the things that are suffering as, as a knock-on effect um, from the war. Now, um, there are clear caveats in there. Most members, um, and, and not everybody, um, and it also notes um, there were other views and different assessments. But nonetheless, um, when you've got a forum where China, India... Um, who else has had a slightly ambivalent position on this war? Uh, I mean, Brazil's Lula. Um, he, he, you know, he's, he, he said, look, you've got to look at things from the Russian point of view, South Africa, Saudi Arabia, all these um, countries that are not part of the global West, not part of the grand American alliance, um, and who Western diplomats have been wooing for ages, saying, look, come on, come off the fence. Um, we understand you've got your own interests here, but 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 you've really... You've got to either get on side with us or you've at least got to use your influence with the Russians uh, to restrain them. Um, this is a breakthrough um, for that policy. I, I don't I mean, it's pretty, pretty strong language, really. Um, and I, I think that's partly a result of uh, the Russians basically ceding space. Vladimir Putin refused to go. Uh, to this summit. He sent Sergei Lavrov instead. Sergei Lavrov stayed for one day and he left, he left yesterday afternoon and he le- he's left um, Anton Siluanov, the finance minister in charge. So, you know, there wasn't really anyone to fight Russia's corner anyway. Um, but still fascinating. I mean, this, this is Emmanuel Macron um, at his, the, his, his press conference at the end of the, uh, of the session earlier today, um, you know, just before he headed back to Paris. Quote, I'm convinced China can play on our side a more important mediating role in the coming months, to prevent, in particular, a stronger return of ground assaults in early February. Now, that to me is fascinating, because he he met Xi Jinping yesterday. Um, He's basically saying, he's implying that they've discussed the idea of of Beijing becoming a mediator, taking a role that Turkey's been playing earlier in the war, Um, and also specifically talking about preventing a return to... Um, you know intensified combat operations in February which really echoes those those odd reports we've had from the United States recently about um, you know talking about a winter lull maybe the winter lull can help us get diplomacy going um, there 's definitely something going on there um, and I'll stop there. Thank you very much for that, Roland. Francis, I know you had some thoughts on this. Do you want to come in?
0: Well, thank you, David, and good afternoon, everyone. I apologise in advance if my signal or audio quality is less than optimal. I'm currently halfway up an ancient volcano and I'm supposed to be on holiday, but the news last night brought me and I think everyone else back down to Earth. I'm only going to speak very briefly. Um, For the reasons that Roland's just highlighted, it goes without saying that this is not only a highly precarious moment, but a significant one for the shape of the war to come in the coming months. Uh, My first thought, however, is just with the Ukrainians who have been suffering horrifically in the last 24 hours. I mean, as Roland was saying, the nature of these attacks are absolutely vicious, and clearly the Russians have been holding back weaponry in order to launch this attack, timed with um, the summits that we've been describing this week. Um, but in terms of the significance of the strike itself, that's uh, that's that's hit and killed two people in in Poland. Um, whoever is responsible for this will face consequences as a result for russia if it is them and as i say we we it seems more likely it's ukraine at this point by accident but if it were russia then the consequences would be more obvious it would be further condemnation and military support um for ukraine but if ukraine is responsible then i think the consequences will be will be less clear one can see it going one of two ways either it focuses minds in europe that this war is still very much going on and uh, will make those powers want to end it by providing further military support for Ukraine. There's some evidence that, that that's what uh, um, certain of the Baltic states are, are reacting to this. But it could also trigger a nervousness in the West and in Europe that this war cannot be allowed to endure indefinitely for fear that something worse could happen that will drag other countries into the conflict. So in that if that argument is true, then I think we can expect there to be shifts in the diplomatic sphere, Sphere, forgive me, and and as Roland was saying, I think we're already seeing some evidence for this. If you look at Macron's re- remarks about China, absolutely incredible really in the context of this to be saying that China are going to be paying overtures because the only way that they will be doing that essentially is to try and broker some sort of deal, I think, that would end the war before Ukraine launches some other major significant counter-offensive, and who knows what the consequences of that would. Will be, But you can imagine that it wouldn't be one that would necessarily please the the, the Ukrainians. So um, I was also quite struck by the remarks of the of the Kremlin in response to Biden's statement saying that he thought that the evidence suggested that it was an accidental missile fired by Ukraine. They, they praised him quite strongly for his remarks and uh, and uh, for not jumping to conclusions essentially and I think that again it's indicative of, of Russia are looking for some kind of off-ramp here that, that if they were able to keep the annexed territories then that for them would be seen as a victory and the question now is how much Western resolve is going to hold on saying that that cannot be allowed to happen but anyway just to conclude underlining all of this is the fundamental point that, that war is ultimately unpredictable and those who are making the calculations now really really never know the equations that matter on a day-to-day basis this event that we've just described it could change nothing but it could change everything and that in that regard i think that it's absolutely right that we focus on it very much in detail today
1: well thank you francis and thank you roland um dom can i come to you next before we uh, uh introduce our guest um olga dom you've had an interesting morning where have you been and what have you learned
3: yeah, good morning. Good afternoon. Sorry. Hi. Hi, everybody. I've um, I've been out all morning. I've been locked up uh, in the journalist spa, uh, which is basically MI5 because you have to go in there, turn your phone off. Nobody can ring you. You can't get hassled by the news desk, et, cetera, et cetera. So et it's, it's a it's a lovely haven of peace and tranquility. But I was there for this year's annual director general of MI5 uh, threat speech. And I was just going to give you a, uh, some a quick, um, quick tour around the, the bazaars. Um, it's an uh, embargo till one o'clock, so it's out now. You'll, you'll see it online and, and other, other carriers, although why would you go there? We're also covering the story. But, I mean, um, Ken McCullum, the Director General of MI5, he was very forthright, as you'd expect, um, about the threats to the UK and to to, uh, to our wider sort of uh, Partners. Um, interestingly, started to segue away from away from Russia first, if I, if I may, he was talking about Iran and he was talking about he was saying how the Iranian intelligence services are quote a sophisticated adversary. And he said, this is a quote: We know that over many years they've uh, sometimes operated using their own operatives, doing things with their own hands, and on other occasions they've co-opted other people to work on their behalf. From some of what we've seen across the continent of Europe over the last decade. At times, they're prepared to take reckless actions. At times, they will take action in Western countries. And at other times, they will seek to lure people to other parts of the world, including Iran itself. It's a combination of tactics, unquote. And what he was referring to there, um, in the speech, he, talks to, he talked about a um, risk to, in the UK. And he said that there had been uh, plans to kill British citizens and UK-based individuals who are enemies of the Iranian regime. He said there have been 10 such plots of this since January this year, 10 plots to kill British people and other nationalities on British soil by by the Iranian intelligence services. And he said, another quote, we work at pace with domestic and international partners to disrupt this completely unacceptable um, activity. I thought that was really interesting how, how they, they, he's, he's came out very, very strongly about Iran then. Um, on Russia, I mean, as you'd expect... There are, he covered a whole um, range of, of issues there. He talked about the international efforts last year after the, or sorry, earlier this year after the February 24th invasion where 600 Russian officials were kicked out of Europe Over And he said over 400 of whom are now judged to be uh, spies. He derided as silly, quote unquote silly, Russia's claim that Britain was responsible for for the Nord Stream attack back in September. I think 26th of September, back into September. But he said, quote, the serious point is that the UK must be ready for Russian aggression for years to come. I'm going to carry on the quote. Some of that will be covert aggression for MI5 to tackle and defeat. But much of it, as currently with energy levers, Will be overt, he also highlighted interestingly the threat from what he called putin aligned oligarchs who would be used as tools of influence in the u k um, and then i don 't know if he's, i don 't know if he's a big fan of football or or quite you know if it 's just because the world Cups coming out but he, he then launched into this really pretty clunky anal- football analogy he said Russia thinks nothing of throwing an elbow in the face and routine, routinely cheats to get its way um. Uh, well uh, and routine seems to get its way. Uh, we've had success in getting some of their players sent off, and for now they're a bit distracted by the blame game in their own dressing room, but they'll keep attacking us. <laughs> the Chinese authorities present a different order of challenge. They're trying to rewrite the rule book, to buy the league, to recruit our coaching staff to work for them, and Iran will only let people support one team. And he's prepared to use violence against those who don't toe the line. I mean, it was just it was it was a little bit it was a little bit labored by the by the end of that. But it it was very interesting. He he talked about China, kept talking interesting language in the British government over the last 24 hours. There was a suggestion that um, in the in the the brief period of Liz Truss's premiership, when the uh, the integrated review, the the integrated um, the foreign security defense um and development review cross-government review that came out last year february uh, in fact february um this was it this year last year i'll have to i'll have to go back and look at it but the the current sort of state of britain's security and defense and development foreign policy is being refreshed at the moment partly in light of the um the the february 24th invasion um but also the rise of uh, um china and Liz Truss was think. We thought Liz Truss might use might you call China a threat. Now that language has been dialed back slightly. Some are calling it a U-turn, but I think that's just politics. Because you know I mean, she was only in power for 46 days, for God's sake. So it's not not really a U-turn. And her language was a bit of an outlier. Um, so Ken McCullum, Director General of MI5, he was taught, He kept talking about. China being a strategic challenger and so on and so forth I did ask him in questions I said what does China have to do to move from being a strategic challenger to being a threat and he gave a very eloquent quite lengthy and very opaque answer that that didn't didn't give me any answer whatsoever but they're talking about the the threats from um, Chinese these Chinese police stations that we've seen around the world whereby they're, they're seeking to extend um, their influence using the United Front Work Department and other organisations that apply pressure to, um, to the Chinese diaspora and anyone who seems to be challenging Beijing's, what they perceive as their core interests, um, either through Hong Kong, Xinjiang, whatever. And he said, we can expect to see these kind of activities increase further as Xi Jinping consolidates his power uh, on what Ken McCallum said was an indefinite basis. So it was a pretty, I mean, there's nothing, nothing massively new there, apart from the Iran stuff, um, we're going to have a much longer piece up online a bit later. We've got the first sort of the first toe in, toe in the water now for the uh, one o'clock embargo and a longer story in the paper tomorrow. But it was a good it was a good tour around the, uh, the major attacks. He touched on terrorism as well. Right wing and and Islamic inspired. Terrorism, um, no massive changes there. Um, right-wing extremism seems to be on the on the increase slightly, but but no huge changes there. But state threats, he said, that's where the that's where the a lot of effort. Or, and he wouldn't put any figures on this, but but the the increase in the activity is going towards state threats. So I think the majority of MI5's work is on counter-terrorism still, and of that, the vast majority, seventy-five percent, um, was a figure we've been used in the past, is on Islamic inspired. Um, terrorism extremism uh, vice right-wing and others uh, but of those uh, of, of the increasing increasing threats state threats is is massively outpacing uh what is perceived as any any increasing counter-terrorism but um yep there'll be there'll be more to say online and in print tomorrow
1: well, thank you very much uh, for that, Dom. I thought that gave us quite a good overview, uh, given what Roland was saying earlier about the diplomatic moves at the G20. Uh, Francis, I know you've got, just got one quick thing that I'll ask you all for any final updates before we go to Olga.
0: Thank you, David. Yes, um, just a very quick one, if I may. I've just seen a story that Germany has finished the construction of its first import terminal for liquefied natural gas. Now, this is really significant because, as we've talked about at length in many, many months now, Germany's capacity and and response to the energy crisis is really critical for for the whole of of Europe's response and as you can imagine the fact that they've managed to to build this import hub that um, should be able to store considerable amounts of, of, of liquid gas, for not only for Germany but hopefully for the rest of Europe as well. In about just about 200 days, is a really crucial milestone in in efforts to end not only Germany's energy dependency on Russia but, but wider in Europe as well. And I think it speaks ultimately to a fundamental point here, which is about adaptability. You know, democracies have an ability to adapt quite quickly to 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 changes in policy direction, in a manner that that. Uh, you know, is quite often are not able to do so. And uh, I think as we go into the coming weeks and months and into the winter, the fact that we can see Germany have d- having done this, um, some of, uh, it, there's also movements in France and in uh, Britain as well to be doing similar storage. I think actually within the next few months and indeed if we're thinking longer term as well, The key card that Putin had to play on the energy front will have evaporated almost entirely um, in in terms of of dependency. Of course, there will still be a desire, I think, in many um, European countries to still be purchasing some energy from Russia. Um, One can make of that what you will. Um, But the the dependency issue, I think, will have been um, greatly reduced. And that's going to have a big influence. So as I say, a minor story in the grand scheme compared to all of the things we've been talking about already, but still a significant one, I think, because this crucial energy front plays an enormous role here. And as I say, Germany have managed to build this in about 200 days, which is no mean feat.
1: Well, thank you very much, uh, Francis, Roland and Dom. If there are no further updates, um, I think this is a perfect moment to bring in our guest. Um, Thank you very much for your time, Olga. Thank you for coming to talk to us. Would you just start by introducing yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been working on.
4: Uh, thank you david uh, so um i have been working on ukrainian politics i am myself also ukrainian um, for the better half of the last uh, 16 years um, specifically looking at uh, the way that ordinary ukrainians engage in electoral or protest politics how they come to identify with the ukrainian state uh, what determines uh, their language use and how they feel about it uh, but also more broadly, now their engagement and, and mobilization in the war currently today, and obviously covering a lot of the political elite machinations along the way.
1: Well, can we start? Um, could you paint us a bit of a picture of Ukrainian politics then? So, since since independence, who 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 should we know about? Who are the major players? The parties? What are the big dividing lines? And how have they shifted since since independence?
4: Right, just just thirty years of politics in a sentence, right? <laughs> sorry yes
1: and there's a big <laughs> question yeah. but, um
4: of course you know it 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 depends what angle you want to come at this from, right uh, and for a person like me who studies uh how citizens behave, I certainly think that the Ukrainian electorate is quite an important actor that is often actually un- overlooked, and specifically in security analyses, quite frankly, a lot of the Uh, misunderstandings of how well Ukrainians will fight and defend their state, uh, specifically across the southeast of Ukraine, um, was in great part done uh, as a result of misunderstanding this Ukrainian electorate that has been fiercely attached to uh, this civic notion uh, of what it means to be Ukrainian, and they have repeatedly uh, stood up against various uh, increasingly authoritarian figures um, that were trying to uh, in, in install their chosen successors. Or the, in the case of Yanukovych, President Viktor Yanukovych in 2013, 14, who started to shoot at uh, peaceful protesters. So. I think it's always important to start off with that um very formidable uh group in fact that is the the I think the main um the leading the leading role is played by ordinary citizens, including in our book, the Zelensky effect. But as uh, Henry in my book uh, kind of gives away a hint, the Zelensky effect is very much also about uh, political leaders, such as uh, um, Zelensky himself. But in, in the last 30 years... Uh, his generation was very late to come, actually, to the halls of power in, in the Ukrainian uh, parliament or in government, those people that are now about in their 40s. We, for the last 30 years, really saw this um, pre-independent generation of power brokers in Ukraine, a group of key oligarchs. And we can start listing names, but uh, certainly the former uh, president, Petro Poroshenko, was one of those, including uh, others, Viktor Pinchuk, uh, um, Akhmetov, uh, certainly uh, Kolomoysky, who many have heard about. And they came to not only rule uh, economic and industry uh, avenues in Ukraine, but also uh, in great part politics, um, but also on the obviously on the elite Politics side, we've had some key players, be they the former presidents, uh, uh, Kravchuk, uh, Kuchma, uh, Yushchenko, or prime ministers such as Yulia Tymoshenko, uh, at one point Viktor Yanukovych, then before he became president, and currently uh, Shmyhal, who is uh, the prime minister of Ukraine.
1: So there's an awful lot um to, to, to get into here. It's very interesting. Thank you so much for that, Olga. Um just quickly, um for for listeners outside of Ukraine, um, how is can you tell us a little bit about how politics is done? You know, what's the structure of the legislature and it's it's unicameral. What does that mean? Can you tell us a little bit about how Ukrainian politics works day to day?
4: Well, it, the the official the official line of how politics works and the unofficial line of how politics works. So we can we can talk about the 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 the, the Verkhovna Rada, uh, which is the parliament, and that is a unicameral structure. Um, it, it's one legislative slu- structure in Ukraine, and that uh, it has four hundred and fifty uh, seats. Um that uh, the current uh, president's party, servant of the people, has an outright majority in, 238. This was, quite frankly, um, uh, an astounding victory in the legislature in 2019, something we haven't seen up until this point in time. Not only have we never seen a political party that... uh, To gain an outright majority in this way. We have also never seen a a president that had a party that had a majority that did not have to broker deals with other parties in order to get his policies passed. So that gives a little bit of a hint as to how politics was done in the past. A lot of folks focus on the fact that Servant of the People, the party in power is a personalized party obviously that of the president tied to his uh, his image and even his television show that he starred in prior to becoming president. But uh, that's only part of the story. It's certainly not the only such party. In fact, all of the major parties in Ukraine, be they uh, a European solidarity that is associated with the former president Petro Poroshenko, who remains its leader, or Holos that was founded by a famous musician, um, uh, although it is now led by Kira Rudik, um, uh, but Yushchenna, Yulia Tymoshenko's party, um, and currently led by her as well. They have all been personalistic parties Um, and they have all been attached to one key political mega player as well as one or two or three key oligarchs that were seen as main backers or directly connected with these parties. So for a very long time. Uh, parliamentary legislative politics were done through, uh, quite frankly, a lot of behind uh, the doors, backroom deals that were struck by the political elite and oligarchs. And then those who were MPs in in parliament were forced to vote in ways that uh, their leader and the oligarch backing their party uh, approved of. That changed a little bit since 2014, certainly with the entry of new faces and uh, so-called Euro-optimists, again, folks that are part of this independence generation that are in their 40s and that have slightly different values and that grew up in a very different Ukraine. They've been fighting back against this old, entrenched a group that likes to do things uh, through informal politics pressure and oligarchic control, certainly something that uh, the president uh, Zelensky has been trying to combat in great deal in Ukraine with his uh, dealization law
1: so Let's, before we go to President Zelensky and, and your book, uh, The Zelensky Effect, could you just give us a sense? Because I think, I think wh- why this is really useful and interesting is you're painting uh, a picture of Ukraine for us to understand much better and deeper um, the, the country and its politics. Can, can you talk a little bit about the political landscape just before the war? What are the major policy issues? What are people talking about? What's on the, the government's agenda?
4: Well, certainly. And and, and when you say before the war, you mean before February. Sorry,
1: before the full scale invasion. Sorry. Yes, yes.
4: Because we need, you know, know, for those of us who are Ukrainian, we have a, a, you know, the war started in 2014 for us. Um, And I'm pretty sure uh, you you agree. But yes, before the all out um, full scale invasion by Russia on February 24th, 2022, we have to remember that Ukraine was already in the midst of a war that Ukraine was uh having difficulty uh, economically um throughout actually poverty peaked in 2015 um and then had slight improvements until 2019 and then of course the pandemic hit and um it really had a dramatic effect on everyday lives in Ukraine uh but also that there was a pandemic right and that certainly uh prevented the government to go uh, and specifically the president's party to go full 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 scale with some of their policies that they may have perhaps intended to go forward with prior to the beginning of the pandemic in 2020 um march 2020 uh but the main policy um there were incredible uh series of policies that were being passed and continued and expanded from Poroshenko's time. So here Poroshenko deserves a great deal of credit. Uh, His party and his government started reforms such as decentralization, providing greater control at uh, uh, smaller localities where citizens were more uh, engaged in local politics and in their uh, localities' budgets. Um, Also, major reforms Uh, of the army, uh, and uh, then later language law reforms. Interestingly, when Zelensky, who was a noted Russian speaker who produced so much of his uh, entertainment um, uh, outputs, in russian when he came to power he continued uh, uh he did not oppose he did not change he continued uh, Poroshenko's, uh, the language laws that he uh, reforms he also continued uh, and expanded greatly the decentralization reforms and then again uh, uh in 2021 2020 picked up and expanded uh the army reforms so uh, these were very important But Zelensky was able to achieve a few other really important policies that were controversial, that were perhaps passed through in controversial ways. Uh, But one of this is the land reform laws uh, that will hopefully in the future allow Ukraine to... uh, do a variety of reforms when it comes to the purchase, sale, and uh, usage of agricultural land. Another major reform that Zelensky was able to push through with his majority of 238 uh, uh, deputies in parliament, he was able to push through this nedotorkanist, that deputy immunity, canceling deputy immunity, which was so difficult to do for so many years. And several, several predecessors tried to push this policy through. If you have extremely corrupt individuals that are taking bribes in order to be part of parties and in order to vote a certain way for decades, that obviously creates a shambolic And and chaotic politics. But if you're able to cancel deputy immunity and ensure that people will be prosecuted for such crimes, that is an incredible step towards really, truly a liberal democracy in Ukraine.
1: Well, thank you, Olga, for that. I thought that was incredibly comprehensive. Just quickly, we were talking about President Zelensky. What else do you think we should know about him uh, in the West? That's more than just you know, the charismatic war leader. I mean, you've you've painted a, a very full picture, but I'm, I'm curious. You've mentioned some of his big policy successes. H- have there been failures? What, what what do Ukrainians criticize him for?
4: Okay. Well, first, we'll we'll, we'll talk about should, uh, what should he be known for, and I think. Uh, There's a few things here that um, I particularly find fascinating about the way we talk about uh, President Zelensky, uh, the way we talk about him prior to becoming president. And uh, we detail this in the Zelensky effect booked, which, by the way, also covers the last 30 years of politics, but in more depth than I was able to do in those few minutes uh, uh, earlier and covers all these policy reforms, as well as some potential failures of Zelensky's. Um, But the thing that really irks me, David, and the thing that I'm shocked constantly when people do not refer to this, is that he was the general producer of one of the most important and in fact the most viewed uh, television networks in Ukraine. Uh, And this was a a television network that was Inter that was also associated with a key oligarch, not the oligarch he was then later um, uh, thought to be connected to when he was running for president and thereafter. But His role as general producer of a major, major television network, even if he kept saying that he did not involve himself in the news desk politics and all this stuff, it meant that he was a major player in Ukrainian society and politics. And in fact, far more important member of the elite than I think people are giving him credit for but also perhaps looking into how that came to be how he behaved in that role and uh, if if there's anything else there so he's certainly not a novice in 2019 um, or on that new year's eve address when he declares himself to be a candidate for presidency Um, in fact he is uh, a well-heeled member uh, in part of the establishment what was different, of course, about Zelensky was that he played a president on TV. So we call this in the book uh, virtual incumbency of Zelensky's because most people probably saw him playing president on television more than they saw Petro Poroshenko on television as the real president, right? So it, it was a very masterful coming, uh, campaigning and coming to be president, I think, that most people miss. And they just underestimated him as an uh, entertainer and comedian um, and so forth. But uh, in terms of policy, you know, I think the big successes are often underreported. So I think the big successes of 2019 to 2022... They are underreported. They are under discussed. Uh, the fact I don't think the, the the I don't think praise should only go to him, but also his team. But the failures and the problems also need to be um, raised. Oh, one of those is that he had uh, a very difficult time putting together some of his team. Certainly, uh, we know um, through our interviews with individuals off the record and on the record that uh, a lot of people uh, declined um, major roles in government, cabinet, uh, running different institutions, and so on and so forth, because uh, they had a very partisan view of Zelensky. Um, and that was a, I think, a mistake that a lot of people are going to look at, um, that they did not join these institutions in 2019. But because of that, I think, uh, Servant of the People and Zelensky and, and government did have to, in some cases, uh, look to put people in posts that perhaps were not quite ready for those posts, um, or maybe had a little bit more of, uh, a complicated history and CV, shall we say that, um, that some people call them as um, dark figures or so on. I think uh, that certainly happened. Um, there were cases uh, that were reported in the media. But in all all these instances, these individuals were reprimanded or taken out of post. And I think Zelensky was quite um, ardent on cleaning house where and when he could And when the opportunity arose, including when people made mistakes, he gave people chances several times. But then, when uh, you know, third strike and you're definitely out. And in fact, in maybe a very even public way, in some instances. Uh, Beyond that, there's obviously a potential criticism uh, around some of the centralization of power that is happening um, in a wartime. Individuals like myself think that that is perhaps a necessary reality of, of, of wartime leadership. What we really will see is how Zelensky goes forward, um, it, not only as a wartime president, but then thereafter, how he uh, manages power, how he is able to share power and how he is able to work with opposition going forward.
1: Thanks, Olga. I've just got um, two more questions from me than I know. uh, Francis, Dom and Roland, I'm sure, will have questions as well. Um, Moving away from Zelensky, I read a recent paper of yours about democracy in Ukraine and how uh, Ukrainians, you say, have been steadily rallying around democracy in in recent years, especially sort of since the pandemic. I thought that was very interesting and it stands in um, opposition to to other countries we could talk about. Um, Can you talk us through what you found?
4: Yeah, so this is why I started with you know the main political actor in Ukraine being those ordinary citizens, those ordinary Ukrainians. <laughs> it's 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 really wild when you start paying attention to them. Um, eh, first off. We have been, as part of this mobilized project, and again, we detail uh, this in, in the article in Journal of Democracy, but also in the Zelensky effect, we talk about um, how Ukrainians rallied around democracy and why that is the case. But as part of our project um, that's based at the University of Manchester, Mobilize, we have been surveying ordinary Ukrainians uh, over the last um, three, four years and uh, we do this in a panel format. So that means we go and re-interview the same people over time. So we're getting around a lot of um, issues. You know, you know, you do not always know if a trend is a trend or if it's something and partly connected to the sample, but here we are pretty clear that individuals change their position on key things. And one of those key things that they change their uh, position on is support for democracy uh, or believing that democracy is the best system for Ukraine. In 2019, just about 40% of the Ukrainian population thought that democracy was the best system for the country. Uh, Others thought that, you know, authoritarian system would be better. Others thought uh, for people like me, it doesn't matter. And others still thought that it was hard to say. That group always baffled me because if after 30 years, you still find it's hard to say whether a democracy is good, it's that's quite the puzzle. And that was uh, right before Zelensky was elected, 2019. And then we started looking at our data. Each and every year, we saw an uptick more and more people in our sample started to move to believe that democracy is the best system for Ukraine. And our last pre-all-out invasion survey wa- ended on February 16th, 2022. And when I saw that data, I, I, I started really freaking out, thinking that there's a huge error, and we started running all sorts of analytical robustness checks because we found that near 60% of the Ukrainian population st- said that they supported democracy from 40 to 60. After the all out invasion, that moved to about 71, 74% of the Ukrainian population. I have looked through all of the democratization uh, data research out there. I tried to find any country where we saw the support for democracy jump so quickly amongst individuals uh and individuals changing their position i can't find anything like that and what's connected to it um well a few things so these people also think uh, they also come to think that eu accession is the way to go these people also come to think that nato uh membership is the way to go for ukraine as a preferred policy. And these people also um, come to have a stronger sense of civic duty, which we measure in a variety of ways they tend to be actually from the southeast of Ukraine, the movers. They tend to be uh, also among uh, Russian speakers from the southeast of Ukraine. So it's very interesting that it's exactly this group of uh, ordinary Ukrainians that perhaps Putin was counting on in February that were already moving to supporting democracy prior to the war. But what really, really shocked me when we did our analyses is that having voted, for a servant of the people, the president's party, actually increased the likelihood that an individual would move to support democracy. Now, why is that the case? I think that they saw that not only a party can deliver on some key electoral promises, but also that the president was in fact embodying and amplifying a civic identity amongst Ukrainians, um, and that they began to see themselves as part of that Ukrainianness, And finally, uh, I think that very much they also noted that Zelensky did not overturn the, his predecessor's policies and laws. Zelensky did not, the first thing that Zelensky did when he came to power, he did not overturn language law that everyone thought he might, right? So really they saw democracy working and they came to rally it. Who came to rally before February 24th? Those were folks who found it hard to say. um, And those were folks that previously thought the authoritarian system uh, was the best one. After the all-out invasion of Ukraine by Russia began, this final group started to move to support democracy. Those folks who thought that for people like them, it didn't matter what system they lived in. I think nothing clarifies for you that it matters what system you live in that a democracy is preferable to an authoritarian state when an authoritarian country is invading your country.
1: Well, thank you, Olga. I've just got one more question. Um, you've, you've touched on a few things already, but it'd be quite interesting, I think, to sort of have it as a separate question and sum it up. But what, what do you think uh, foreigners and non-Ukrainians get, get most wrong about the Ukrainian, Ukrainian politics, the Ukrainian political scene? What Are there any myths, any other myths you'd like to sort of bust about it?
4: well i think it's 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 this 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 element of ordinary citizens attachment fierce attachment to the state um, and that Ukrainians have found a unity in their civic duty and personal engagement in politics and different Ukrainians uh, from different parts of the country from different generations rallied to this position, this fierce attachment to the state, perhaps at different times. But that is such a central feature of Ukrainian politics um, and I think people really underestimate it. They really still want to focus on elite actors and the decisions they make. Or worse, you know, they are so-called political realists or international relations realists where they really want to focus on the the, 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 the big, big players such as the U.S. and Russia, even sometimes forgetting about the EU or the U.K. and others, um, as the deciding factors and the the actors who make the key decisions that um, will determine the outcome of the war. I think per- precisely because Ukrainians have this fierce civic national identity, um, it, it that is Why they have been, uh, that is why they can be rallied by politicians such as Zelensky, but that's also why they themselves rally and mobilize and engage even without his call to arms. Um, And we've seen that all across Ukraine since February uh, 2022, but I still think that people underestimate it. Um, And it really worries me when people suggest well, what happens when Ukraine stops getting support from? Country X, Y, or Z. Well, of course that will change the scope of the war. Of course that will make a Ukrainian victory that much more difficult. We have to be sober analysts in that case. But Ukrainians will not stop fighting, right? Um, and uh, Ukrainians will do a better job fighting when they get uh, both the moral and uh, and and physical support, technical support from their allies and friends. But Ukrainians will not stop fighting. And, and if anyone thinks that Ukraine can be forced into negotiation, well, they, they really need to start paying attention to those ordinary citizens.
1: Well, thank you very much uh, for all of your answers, Olga. I thought that was absolutely fascinating and just what we needed, I think. Um, Roland and Dom and Francis are all listening. Francis, can I go to you first? I know, I know you're, you're on top of a mountain. So do you want to go first with your question?
0: Thank you, Dave. Yes, it's rather chilly up here. Um, just a couple of questions, if I may, Olga. Really interesting hearing your insights. The first is, uh, we've spoken on this podcast um, many months ago following the invasion about the significance of Zelensky and those crucial first days of the war. We know, obviously, that in the opening weeks, Russia tried to have him assassinated. How critical do you think Zelensky has played in Ukraine's fight? Do you think, as some do, that if he had been killed, that maybe Ukraine would have if not fallen, that that things would have been in a very, very difficult situation now compared to the fact that he stood firm and and, and offered a a sort of a standard in which Ukraine was able to unite behind. And my second question is, what do you think the future of Ukraine looks like at the end of the war if Ukraine is successful? What kind of new state, shaking off oligarchic power, for instance, do you you see Ukraine evolving into?
4: Right, so... First, the Ukraine without Zelensky. Um, I think there's two ways to answer that question. The first is Zelensky played a very important role. Um, His leadership and, you know, the, the fact that he stayed and he 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 kept making those some in some cases videos by himself and not in all cases uh, you know sometimes it is actually him with his phone making these things on his own obviously he has a team to help him out as well um i think that was a huge um uh, moral boost to ukrainians i think it was also it provided a very good um blueprint or example of how other political leaders should be behaving, right? Uh, We actually know that there is some evidence that local mayors and and, uh, town leaders started mimicking his sort of uh, uh, style and substance of communication. And importantly, Zelensky, which he has been doing both in his entertainment, uh, you know, in his shows and theatrical outputs, but then also in his speeches in time as president prior to the war, he has been doubling down on this idea. Ident- uh, as, on this idea that what unites Ukrainians is civic values, is the support for democracy, is, a, is, is the, the determination to defend their democracy and state, and the things that may have been suggested to de- that divide Ukrainians are in fact things that cannot divide them, and he reiterated these messages, you know, these messages of unity and standing together, very clearly. At the same time. We cannot uh, suggest that, you, you know, Zelensky is a product of the civic nation he was born into. He is the man he is today because he is part of that independence generation who has lived through so many tumultuous periods of Ukrainians' political past. And because he himself came to rally around the state and to support democracy at some point in his life right so he is a mirror image of the ordinary ukrainian and a lot of people that perhaps are supporters of opposition um candidates uh, uh public intellectuals have also said zelensky simply did what any dignified ukrainian would do and that's stay fight support uh support um you know communities whatever whatever you can play your part in uh, defending the state. Um, This is why uh, many folks say that there's a 44 million army and Zelensky is one member of it, albeit, I think, a very important one. Um, Our data also show, by the way, that 80% of the civilian population is engaged in the war effort in some way, whether it's making donations or a variety of volunteer organizations and so on, 80% of the civilian population. So in fact, perhaps Zelensky is just like one of them. Oh, and your second question. Oh, my gosh, I, I almost forgot. New Ukraine after. I think Ukraine will have a the most important thing Ukraine will have uh, to rebuild. Right. Um, perhaps the sort of thing that we haven't seen in any recent history um, that will be extremely costly, but that will also be strategically diff- difficult. Um, so I think the political elite will have to try to maintain their unity in peacetime, because in order to rebuild the country, they will have to make difficult decisions. What goes first? What comes second? What happens simultaneously? Uh, and at what cost? And with what help? And how?
1: Thank you very much, Francis. Um, Roland and Dom. Roland, I, I know you were slightly pressed for time. Do you want to go next if you have a question?
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Um, yes, hello. Um, that was what, absolutely fascinating. Thanks very much. I've got, I mean, I've got a bunch of questions, but I'm going to try and whittle them down into, into two. I mean, the first blunt one is, do, do you think the war kind of Saved Zelensky in a way. I mean, he was um, he was. I remember people not being especially happy with him before the war. He turns out to be an incredibly gifted war leader, um, perhaps because he is a performer um, and things like that. But I mean, do you do you think? How, how do you think the hypothetical, the invasion never happened? That um, there was no grand uh, grand war of this scale. Um, what what was his kind of political trajectory? Um, before the invasion Um, and the other thing is kind of i'm interested in everything you said about um you know these 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 focus groups you're doing with 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 ukrainians and suddenly there's a shift towards supporting democracy um and you talked about okay it's fascinatingly you know russian speakers in the south and east um some people who formerly kind of supported authoritarianism um all of that but i'm interested in class i mean do you have any data about how that crosses you know wealth and education lines um you know i i i sometimes get the impression that zelensky kind of represents quite a middle classish kind of vote um i may be misplaced but also that there's another answer that when you're talking about kind of the future of ukraine and and what kind of what kind of state emerges afterwards um open democracy have done some very interesting reporting about kind of um you know under-the-radar kind of stuff, while we're all concentrating on the war, kind of crackdowns on trade unions, um, some strikes by miners um, over in West Ukraine, um, a a kind of sense that, um, to put it bluntly, that kind of labor rights are being eroded um, and that the Ukraine that emerges from this war um, may be uh, slightly more, um, you know, kind of ravenously free market- um, perhaps than other parts of Europe. I'm very interested in your your take on those questions.
4: So again, not, not a simple question, but uh, um, first off, uh, Zelensky's uh, support. Um, there's a few few caveats here that I think when uh, opposition. Uh, whether it's intellectuals or opposition politicians, talk about Zelensky's approval ratings. They talk about it in a very particular way. And they also, I think, at times paint, um, well, shall we say just a very partisan picture. Uh, Zelensky's uh, approval Um starts off in 2019 actually prior to his election at around 23%. Most people don't talk about that. In our data it goes up uh, certainly in 2020 to 50%, 2021 January February 2021. So uh, about a about a year into the pandemic his approval rating uh, was at what in our data a high of 55%. Um that was quite remarkable in itself because, uh, quite frankly, um, after just uh, just under two years in power and, um, and at a time when the pandemic was having a massive negative effect on the social health and economic well-being of the country, for his support to be that high was uh, quite surprising. Uh, and then it began to fall in 2021 um uh and it fell uh by uh our last data point there in december 2021 february 22 to about 33 percent. right so it fell quite dramatically um yes and his uh you know his disapproval rating was higher at that point than his approval rating um but nonetheless it was higher than where he started out and uh, more so, I think, when people talk about his re- approval rating plummeting in a time of pandemic, not surprising whatsoever, um, it, it was nowhere near the levels of his predecessors' um, uh, lows, right? So pretty much it's a pattern that has plagued people. Uh, presidents um, time and time again in Ukraine, where they have a high uh, approval rating at the beginning, and then it quickly comes to crash. In the case of President uh, Petro Poroshenko, at the same time in his presidency, so around the same marker uh, as we gave the 33% approval rating for uh, Zelensky, Petro Poroshenko's uh, approval rating at that time was 17%, okay? So less, less than, uh, well, just about half of, of what the, uh, Zelensky's was. So whilst his approval rating fell in quite dramatically, it did not actually fall as hard and as far to that of his uh, predecessors, and notably, I think Poroshenko is the best comparison because Poroshenko also had um, a war context and an economic crisis to deal with, um, albeit he did not have a pandemic to deal with. So that in itself, I think, needs to be taken with a great assault. And when people report on it, yes, indeed, people were uh, had a much lower approval rating um, uh, of him as president. But what does happen also between January, February 2021 and then February 22 in our own data is that his approval of uh, uh, his leadership during the COVID pandemic and his leading on the COVID pandemic actually went higher. So in February 2021, it was 38 percent. On the eve of Russia's invasion in February 2022, it was 43 percent. So depending on which... Um, measures you look at, you have a slightly different and perhaps a more nuanced idea of where his approval and and disapproval rating um, did uh, fall. When it comes to, uh, I think here, uh, another important question um, about the class element, and it's not actually, the uh, in our analyses when it comes to support for democracy, we do not find a class component that would explain uh, someone moving to democracy or to support for a democratic system as being the best one in Ukraine Uh or staying in uh, the category of authoritarian or hard to say, or um, it doesn't matter for people like me, which system I live in. So we do have, we see, you know, class correlation. So we're not doing focus groups. We're doing nationally representative surveys. We're able to really get a good snapshot of the country. And we don't see a class component there. In fact... Uh, we have some evidence that Zelensky following at his victory in 2019 was able to um, not only bring the middle class to support for democracy, because these folks predominantly already supported um, democracy, but in fact, people that um, would belong to classes that are considered working class and, um, and lower socioeconomic classes in Ukraine and this matches very well with his messaging, whether it be in his television shows or beyond, he often talked about poverty in Ukraine. He often talked about not being able to buy, you know, meat for dinner or having to go abroad to work because the way that the Ukrainian economy is set up, it simply cannot accommodate, um, a lot of individuals in in, in employment up until of course, this period, we're talking about a pre-war period and post during war is very different context. Uh, so he, in fact, uh, perhaps rallied actually people from lower socioeconomic classes more to pro-NATO, pro-EU, pro-democracy positions. Um, or uh, that's at least what it looks like in the data. So that's not quite the story we're getting there. Um, uh, there is uh, the folks that oppose him are predominantly of a very particular type of electorate. Uh, they are the so-called 25 percenters. Uh, they do predominantly come from the west of Ukraine. And they are tend to be highly educated, uh, and they tend to um, also identify more strongly with uh, a- a- ethno-nationalist ideals of, of what it means to be a Ukrainian. So uh, the general middle, the median voter um, in Ukraine, in central Ukraine, in southeast Ukraine, uh, it's a very different story. Um, and his and support for Zelensky actually among these individuals uh, declined a great deal less. Um, when the, whether it comes to uh, class structures in Ukraine or uh, neoliberal reforms, uh, certainly wouldn't be the beginning of neoliberal reforms in Ukraine. Um, I, I, I don't think it's quite right to describe the, the issues around unions in, in the terms that you just did, uh, most notably because some of these reforms are the reforms that are needed to be in place in order to align with some of the EU regulation. So I, I think we have to take each one of these instances and reforms separately and discuss it because they have slightly different um, uh, beginnings and ends here and, and aims. Uh, but it, I don't think it's quite clear that that is the case, um, at least not yet. Do I think there is a possibility that um, the reforms that come in peacetime in Ukraine will be of a neoliberal nature? Yes. Do I think that is uh, potentially a, a problem, a risk? Yes, potentially so. Um, Do I think Ukraine needs a variety of reforms, including perhaps liberalization of some uh, entities and some industries? Yes, also. So I think it's a little bit more of a complicated story there, Um, but perhaps hopefully one that we will get to discuss in greater detail
1: when uh, there is peace in Ukraine. Dom, can I come to you very quickly if that's all right, Olga? Just one more question from Dom, and then we can um, have our final thoughts.
3: Thank you, thanks, David. Uh, Olga, thanks so much for doing this. Really, really appreciate. It. I had two questions, but I've um, I'll just just ask ask the one and thinking. Please don't think that, that we're in any way taking it for granted. The these these great discussions about the politics of your country. You know, we're not taking for granted the the effort and the bloodshed still to come to to, to enable people to really um, answer these. Uh, um, yeah, I would have. I would have loved if I was. You know, when I was when I was deployed in the army, I would have loved to have people back discussing the the politics at the time. So I think the two are are entirely mutually, um, yeah, they're beneficial. Um, when David and I visited your country in July, we had the great pleasure of meeting Mr. Klitschko Vitali Klitschko, the, the mayor of Kiev. Um, we both had our had our fists comprehensively squashed by by him <laughs> shaking hands. Um, now I understand he comes from a he's a he's a very much an opponent of uh, President Zelensky, but they've, he's absolutely rallied behind the, behind the, the cause since February the 24th, and, and he, 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 he gave no indication, absolutely, well, he outright said he's not going to step away from it until, this, uh, until the war comes to a successful conclusion. But after that, when when the politics returns to quote-unquote norm normality what are the differences between Zelensky and Klitschko how are they what do they appeal to what different sections of society do they appeal to and where will the cracks be that that Russia could seek to you know, widen in unfairly widen mm-hmm. but what are the big policy differences there thank you
4: so I, I think Klitschko would be very pleased to hear that he is a possible contender to be an, a, a main opponent of Zelensky's in a possible uh, presidential election. Uh, I don't think at this time he would be. I just don't think his political reach is uh, large enough um, and at, at, at this time. Um, And uh, I think there are other uh, folks who would want to come back to the presidency, potentially, uh, not least the former president, Petro Poroshenko, or a close ally of his. If Klitschko would once again strike a deal with Poroshenko in some way, as they did back in uh, 2014, uh, that might be a different story. Uh, Klitschko actually was... um, my father's neighbor for quite some time and my memories of him when I was in my teens and early 20s is that he was the only other person who got up in the morning to jog in the city center of Kiev when jogging was not quite the thing you would do. So uh, I have a very particularly skewed um, recollection of Klitschko um, who was living in the city center and and quite frankly um, probably a much more modest flat than I think most people would assume. Uh, he has been, uh, 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 I think, a very impressive leader in in Kiev. Um, uh, him, his brother, his whole administration um, have been working, I think, uh, in lockstep with also the Zelensky and his administration, and supporting each other where they need to. Um, I think he has also quite, I think, developed um, a, a better, more accessible style through his uh, frequent and regular uh, communications to Kievan, uh, to Kievites, or uh, Kiane as we call them, uh, the residents of Kiev. Um, and I, I think he, he he's well-respected for that. Um, it, is he a, an opponent of Zelensky's? I, 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 I don't know if he's an opponent, Opponent, um, he certainly has been connected to parties that are in opposition, uh, but of course he has his own party as well. Um, so it, I think there are other potential candidates that would, I think, like to challenge Zelensky in the future. Um, in a peaceful Ukraine. We'll see if Zelensky, in fact, does uh, go up for election again, or if he uh, sticks to his earlier, um, uh, in fact, campaign promise that he's only going to go for one term. Maybe the war changed that. Um, but I-, I think the main issue for Ukrainian political elite is not to give in to their own ego and ambition, which they have multiple times, and these personalistic fights that they have been engaged in, we talk a lot about in the Zelensky effect, over 30 years, that really damage the idea of what it means to be in politics. That is the only place where that could be the the, the schism, the polarization of the political elite in Ukraine that could work to uh, Russia's uh, benefit. Uh, I think they know better. I think they're sometimes... Tempted to, uh, and their ego gets the best of them. Uh, But it is important in a democracy to be able to criticize the government. It is important that opponents and various opposition parties are able to engage in the rules of the game of politics and criticize, oppose the government. uh, You know, really get at uh, the difficult policy questions uh, without these personalistic and and, um, you know going back to the old old school ways of doing politics in ukraine that will be that that's that's the kryptonite for ukraine if the political elite um really fall prey to this uh that you know divide and rule and that will be uh that would be the, the that would be the main nemesis for uh ukraine it's its own political elite but i think they know better than that and um and at least i know for sure because i've spoken to some people connected to uh, various opposition parties they know better than that they know what it means to criticize in a democracy um and where that criticism on policy or action should start and begin and how you do not try to take down then um an entire political party unnecessarily just because you're an opposition.
3: Brilliant. Thank you. So I'll pause there because I see uh, David briefly. On. Have I got time for one more question, David?
1: If, if we're quick, if we're quick. I, I realise we've gone massively over time, but this is so fascinating. Thank you, Olga. So only if you're quick, Dom.
3: <laughs> all right, all right, steady. <laughs> um, well, was it, that question about democracy, Olga. I mean, we we, uh, yeah, we see democracy, or, or, or rather you know, Russia sees the messiness of democracy as, as, it, as a weakness and proof of why it should never be Never be attempted, never be tried. whereas we, uh, those that those that love democracy, see see the cracks and the ugliness and and you know I guess even the even the hypocrisy of of democracy at times as its strengths, because it's an inherently a, a human business. Um, I'm no political scientist, but as, you know it's just me sort of spitballing here. I just wonder where where is Ukraine on that spectrum of of loving the <laughs> loving the flaws of democracy or thinking it's it's terrible? Um, and do you think? Do you think Russia could ever come over to that? What what stopped Ru- What is stopping Russia from embracing democracy?
4: I think that's the uh, Dom. That's the the million, multi-million, billion-pound question, right? Uh, why is Russia different? And I I'll leave that to the, my colleagues who are Russia experts to to try to answer. Um, I do think civic. Again, the civic sense of identity, attachment to the state and sense of civic duty that has been developed in Ukraine, not only since 1991, we, you know, we have a long history of Ukrainian dissidents in Ukraine uh, that came, that were Russophones that were ethnically Russian um, or belonged to other religious groups or ethnicities, and yet rallied around a civic notion of Ukrainianness. Some of the most famous being, for instance, Ivan Zuba, who came from Donetsk and only came to learn Ukrainian in his 20s. He sadly passed away uh, the night after Putin made his first uh, speech to us on February uh, 21st to 22nd, around then. Um, but yes, yeah, so there's a long history here in Ukraine, and I think that that makes it very different from Russia. Not to say that Russia doesn't have dissidents, activists, uh, civil society members who have tried to do the same. There's something different about the median uh, uh, elector, um, a median voter in, Ukra- in Ukraine and Russia. For now, uh, I don't. I don't believe in these ideas that something can never happen. Timur Koran actually has this uh, whole thing about you know out of never you have revolutions and I think that might very well be the case in Russia one day which will surprise very many people and perhaps maybe I'm hoping for that Um, in Ukraine will they uh, you know do, do Ukrainians love democracy well they've been dealt a very rough and turbulent ride in their democracy I think that's very much the whole point, um, again, that we make in the Zelensky effect about the independence generation. These were, folks who were, you know, 7 to 14 years old when Ukraine became independent. They were old enough to understand what the Soviet Union was and how hard it was to live in the Soviet Union, uh, but they were certainly too young to do anything once Ukraine became independent. And they had to live through, you know, this wild, wild East version of the 1990s when oligarchs and various mafia clans connected to them would commit murders in city centers right drive by shootings happened this was the 1990s you couldn't buy certain products in in uh, well you could buy very little in stores uh people were poor hiv rates were rising people were leaving the country en masse uh, you know then you have uh, you know the first attempt to restore the direction of ukraine as democratic in the orange revolution people rise up and then they get massively disappointed because what happens after 2004 and the Orange Revolution is just more and more and more infighting between politicians. Um, and then, of course, Russia plays the gas war card and then all this turbulence. And then they again elect someone that then proves to be increasingly authoritarian. And they rise up again against this politician. Right. They have had one very difficult ride with democracy Uh, and then they are of course invaded by their neighbor Um, nonetheless they seem to be doubling down on the things that are important in democracy so they value democracy as a system they think that their role in it is to engage the sense of civic duty that is also growing amongst ukrainians it, you know, We're talking 80-something percent of Ukrainians think it's their civic duty to vote. Voting is not uh, obligatory. Um, about half of the population think it's their duty to engage in other extra-institutional civil society activities. Can you imagine saying those same things about many other countries? Probably not. So. Even in the face of turbulence and this wild ride of the democracy that did exist, I think ordinary Ukrainians remain, for whatever amazing and miraculous reason, uh, dedicated to the hope that their democracy in the future will be better. Um, But they see themselves, again, as the main actor in that democracy. So if Zelensky messes up, uh, if Zelensky... Well, whether engages in a negotiation that the median voter does not support or messes up in some other way, the Ukrainian uh, electorate, the Ukrainian citizens will put him in his place as well. Um, I think so far they think he hasn't done that. Uh, But they they did that to also Poroshenko in 2019. Poroshenko, there's a lot of wonderful things. We can talk about Poroshenko's time as president. We can also talk about the fact that he is one of the main major oligarchs, that he did um, rely on personalistic rule and uh, family friendships and ties in his policy and politics. We can also talk about other problems that occurred during his presidency. The citizens definitely showed him where they stood when it came to him uh, trying to come back to power. And they did that time and again with others. So, Take that uh, as, you, uh, as you want. Um, these Ukrainians, they are committed to their democracy. And I guess that's what inspires us about them.
1: Well, thank you so much, Olga. We've covered so much in uh, an hour and 20, almost an hour and 20 minutes. So thank you so much for your time and apologies for, for running over. Thank you for answering all of our questions. Just very quickly, uh, Roland and Dom, can I get your final thoughts? And then we'll leave the very final thoughts to Olga. And do, do tell us again about your book, which I believe is
2: coming out tomorrow. So Roland or Dom, would you like to go first? I can go first, that's fine. Um, uh, I, I think that was really, really good um, kind of summary of things about Ukraine we don't often think about when we're talking so much about the war. So thank you very, very much. Um, Olga, um, I'd like to, I completely agree with what she was saying about, you know, um, Ukrainians' attitudes to their leaders. Um, when I've spoken to, um, to Ukrainian soldiers or civilians, um, you know, saying, you know, haven't you got a great president? Look what he's doing. The reaction is generally, well, well, it's his job. You know, um, if he wasn't doing it, he'd be in trouble. Um, so I, I, I fully kind of recognise um, that description of Ukraine. Um, I, I, t- final thoughts um, on the China thing. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of attempts to kind of push this as a major shift in China's policy. I think it's a much more nuanced there. Um, so don't necessarily imagine um, that President Xi is going to rip up his alliance with Putin. But it's definitely, definitely something we should be keeping an eye on because those kinds of very small, very slow tectonic movements in the diplomatic landscape will contribute um, one way or another to the, the end of this war and what the world looks like um, afterwards. And the last thing is, of course, we were talking a lot about Poland and the strikes. Um, don't forget about um, you know the impact of that on Ukraine. Huge parts of the country without power. I was speaking to someone in Kiev the other day who was having to climb uh, 20, 21 stories um, to get back to their flat uh, because uh, you know the the electricity for lifts um, are out, so um, still a very intense kind of deliberate targeting of uh, basically life. Uh, you could say civilians, but but life. Make, trying to make life um, impossible. Um, that that is the challenge for for large numbers of Ukrainians today. Thanks, Roland. Uh, Dom Nichols.
3: Uh, thanks, David. Um, so my final thought: I would just say with the Polish, the, the, sorry, the striking in Poland we still don't know still don't know quite what it is quite what it what it's coming out to be but from what we say what we're looking at so far it seems as if the frothy chatter going around last night on social media which has uh, slipped into some of the press today um seems to have been slightly wider the mark and i just think i think the leaders of nato have passed a test here a test that they wouldn't have wished of course but i think they've handled this Pretty well, and I think their their cool approach to this immediate crisis um, was handled appropriately, and they, they, their language was was couched in all the correct terms. And I think we are the better for it. As I say, they wouldn't wouldn't wish this test on them, but actually, given the, the possible tests to come, this was not a bad uh, not a bad one to have under the belt. So, well done, I think, NATO.
1: Well, thank you, Roland. Thank you, Dom. And Olga, I'll leave you with the very final thought.
4: So I, I couldn't agree more with the, the, the comments made by Dominic and Roland just now. Um, clearly, Russia is becoming a potential liability for China. And I think, uh, again, maybe not tectonic shifts, but even slight ripples can have a dramatic effect on uh Russia, but also on Putin, and psychologically losing support uh, or losing whatever is left of that support. And again, the 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 massive attacks on Ukrainian civilians. I've obviously talked a lot about the inspirational story of ordinary Ukrainians um, over time, but it is about psychologically torturing ordinary Ukrainians, physically and psychologically having to live in the dark, in darkness, having to you know, put on your coat and three different jumpers, and, and it's maybe some people in Europe also going through this this winter, but not having any option to get warm is trying to get psychologically at the ordinary population. Our early data suggests that it has, again, the opposite effect, that people become more entrenched in their determination not to negotiate, they become more entrenched in their will to fight to the end. So, uh, that is an interesting, I think, also development. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Olga. And just very quickly, um, when does your book come out and how can people follow your work?
4: Oh, yes. Uh, um, uh, 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 my book is uh, it's Henry Hale and Myself. Um, and it is actually due out in th- this week, next week. It should be in stores across the United Kingdom. You can order it online. If you're in uh, in Europe, you can also order it online to have it delivered. And it will be out in the U.S. Um, with Oxford University Press. In the U.K., it's out with Hearst. Um, and in the U.S., it will be out in March in stores. So it's a slightly delayed um, release. Uh, but uh, if I may say so myself quite the nice christmas uh stocking stuffer for all those who like the nerdy bits there's plenty of nerdy bits in there including analyses and appendices for all those who like an interesting story there's also a lot of quotes from songs and um from shows and from theatrical appearances so we cover a little bit of everything and if you're a political nerd you will i think really like reading the book about ukraine's political history
1: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.